When I was young, I grew up in the D.C. area, uh, and, and me and my cousins were uh, down in D.C. Uh, near this, we were in like this plaza. Uh, and so I saw kind of in the distance a railing. And if you're like me, like uh, anything like that, a railing, a stop sign is really just a suggestion, right? And so for me, when I saw that railing, what I saw on the other side of the railing was joy, was freedom, was a whole lot of fun. And so I ran at full speed to jump over this railing. And so I I do that. I get over top of the railing, totally clear. I'm super excited. And on the other side of the railing, there is a stairwell, a very, very steep stairwell. Now I'm here. I'm alive. Everything worked out. It was okay. But that was a tragic, tragic situation. Here's the deal. Like I think for for so many of us, and, and this is true in my heart, we'll see it in the text, that a lot of times when we see things like that. So in that case, it was a railing. It could be something as uh, stupid as a stop sign. It might be um, authority that God has placed over our life, whether it's in God's word, whether it's uh, in our careers, in our families, whether it's in the local church. We see authority in our life as just a suggestion or really deep in our hearts. We see those kinds of things as barriers to our joy. And so I see a lot of people who are probably in my uh, generation, they call us the the millennials, especially in our generation. There is this deep skepticism in our hearts towards authority. And it's because we tend to see authority as a restriction on our joy. That submitting to authority, or, or in, in my case, like listening to the people who set up this railing, like submitting to that kind of authority is somehow an imposition on our self-expression. It's somehow a limitation or a restriction on our, our joy and on our freedom. And what we see over and over again throughout the scriptures, and if you've been tracking with this series at all, you cannot read the first five books of the Bible without seeing that the authority of God is designed not to restrain us or to inhibit our joy, but to enhance our joy in God. Conversely, when we resist, when we reject, when we rebel against God's authority, we're ultimately rebelling against our own joy because our joy is found within the design that God has for our life. And we'll see an example of that in Numbers chapter 16. So before we go to the text, uh, let me pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word this morning. Our Father, we thank you as we gather, uh, Lord, to hear your word. And Father, I don't know this uh, congregation super well. I know there's some people who are here who know you, who have been born again through faith in Christ, who have your spirit. And their deepest desire is to surrender to your authority, God, even when they struggle to do so. There's some of us who are here, Lord, who may be kind of straddling the fence of faith. And we're not quite sure you're trustworthy. There's others of us here who maybe came because we were invited by a friend or there's a circumstance in our life that just drove us here. But we have not come to a point where we trust you, where we've submitted our lives to you. For all of us in the room this morning, God, I pray that your word would not return void, that you would accomplish through your word everything that you intend to accomplish. Lord, help us to see how trustworthy and how glorious you are. Help us to see, God how you have designed our joy within the context of your authority. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Let me, get, let me kind of catch you up. If you haven't been uh, tracking with the series or if you're not familiar with the book of Numbers, uh, God has rescued uh, his people out of slavery in Egypt, the ancient Israelites, and he's promised to give them their own land, the promised land, Canaan, um, where they're going to have rest from enemy armies and where they're going to enjoy the abundance of God's blessings. And so they've, they've come out of Egypt. They're on, on a journey toward their promised land but because of their disobedience to god they're delayed in in the wilderness and that's kind of where numbers uh, has us and so moses is the leader god has called to lead them and aaron uh is his right hand man who who god appoints to be israel's high priest so you could kind of think of moses and aaron as president and vice president not really but it'll kind of help you understand the dynamics of leadership uh happening uh in the story or maybe like justin and alan or something like that definitely not really um so uh so moses is the leader aaron is is the high priest he's 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 uh moses right hand uh man and we pick up the story in number 16 with the rebellion against uh their uh, authority let's let's pick it up i'm gonna read it's a lot of verses so i'm gonna read sections uh and then we'll uh kind of talk about some implications of god's word so in verses one through three of numbers chapter 16 there's a coalition of leaders that challenge moses and aaron's authority verses one and two let's read it says now Korah the son of Izar son of Koath son of Levi and Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab and On the son of Peleth sons of Reuben took men and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly well-known men let's pause there in the story for a second who are the people rebelling against moses and aaron well there's three different parties represented in this coalition so there's there's Korah, and although there's there's various parties participating in this rebellion it's typically understood throughout biblical history that this is a rebellion led by Korah. That's why in the rest of this chapter, you'll see this group is referred to as Korah's company. And in the New Testament, Jesus' brother Jew refers to this in his letter as Korah's rebellion. So it seems like Korah has instigated this rebellion and he's rallied some other people around him. Now, what's Korah's background? Well, well, there's 12 Israelite tribes, each with different roles and different levels of prominence because of their history. We'll talk about some of that. And verse 1 tells us that Korah is from the Levite tribe, but specifically through the family of Koath. And that's important because even though Korah and Aaron were both descendants of Levi, So in other words, as Levites, both of their families have special religious responsibilities assigned to them by God. Only Aaron's family was chosen to be high priests. So Korah and and Aaron are descendants of Levi. They have special religious responsibilities, but Korah doesn't have, his family doesn't have the same responsibilities as Aaron's family. And and that kind of introduces some of the conflict in the story, which we'll we'll, we'll look at. So you have Korah representing the Levites, and then you have the Reubenite group led by Dathan, Abiram, and On. So these are descendants of Reuben from the tribe of 
uh, Reuben, which is a different Israelite tribe. The, the, the tribes of the Levites, the, the, the Levites from the descendants of, of Korah, as well as um, the Reubenite uh, tribe, are camped together at the south of the tabernacle. So their tents are very close together. They would have mingled uh, together. So that may explain some of why they um, are a part of this coalition together. And then you have the 250 chiefs, which are just community leaders, general community leaders from the congregation. These three parties form this coalition, this rebellious coalition against Moses and Aaron. Now, why are they rebelling against Moses and Aaron? Well, they give their reason here in verse 3, but as we'll see later in the story, there's a deeper motivation driving their rebellion. Let's look at verse 3. It says, They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? That's verse 3. They're basically saying, listen, we're, we're all equal. So, so why are you acting like you're above the rest of us? And we do the same thing with people who claim to speak to us with some level of authority. A lot of us, we say, listen, you're a man, you're a woman just like I am. Right? We, we, got the same, we got the same blood. We're, we're, we're sinners equally. What, 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 what right do you have to tell me what to do? Who made you God? And listen, some of us will even go so far as to express this attitude toward God himself. And we look to our own human reason as an authority above God's revelation. There's this attitude of insubordination and their reasoning is, listen, we're all equal. We're all equally holy. Why do you get to be the ones that sets yourself up as leaders in our community? Now, here's what you got to understand. This is partially true, but it presents a false dichotomy. They have partial truth that leads them to a faulty conclusion. So you see in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, it says this. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, talking to the children of Israel, he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, yes, just like these rebels said, all the Israelites were holy in the sense they they had been uniquely chosen to know and represent the one true God among the nations. And yes, just like they said, God was among the Israelites. Exodus 29, 45, when God establishes his covenant with the nation of Israel, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, specifically in the tabernacle. And he says, and I will be their God. So, yes, the people of Israel are holy. And yes, God was among them in the tabernacle. But God had very clearly chosen Moses as Israel's leader and Aaron as Israel's high priest. The book of Exodus, if you've read it before, if you've heard any of the sermons uh, previously, the book of Exodus tells the story of God choosing Moses and performing miracle after miracle to, to uh, confirm or authenticate his leadership. Later in the New Testament, Stephen, one of the early church leaders, looking back on this incident in number 16, Kor's Rebellion, says this. He says in, in Acts chap, uh, chapter 7, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent, Moses was sent to be their ruler and deliver by God himself. 
through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. God has chosen Moses to be Israel's deliverer, to be their leader. And Aaron had also been appointed by God. He's been appointed, like I said, to be the high priest. Exodus 29, 44. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle and the altar. And Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. So Korah's coalition has a very selective memory. They have a very selective memory. They're using one set of truths to maneuver their way out of having to obey another set of truths. In one hand, they have we're holy and God is among us. And in the other hand, they have Moses is God's chosen leader and Aaron is God's chosen priest. And rather than submitting to all of God's truth, they ignore some of his truth and embrace the truth that they personally resonate with. This is so common and we're all tempted to do the same thing. We see this in our hearts. We see it in our culture. So, so God is love. And even though he warns us about hell, we don't need to believe that God is a holy judge who will condemn unrepentant sinners. God created us in his image. So, so even though God says that certain desires and behaviors are sinful, God could never disapprove of things that feel so natural. Men and women have equal dignity in God's sight. So even though scripture teaches women to submit to male headship in marriage and in the local church, God can't really mean that. Listen, God requires us to embrace and obey all of his truth and not just the truths that serve our personal interests. Listen, we, we come, as we'll see as we go through the story, we come to God. God invites us to come to him, but we come to God on his terms and not ours. And we humble ourselves under God's authority as we embrace and obey all of God's truth and not just the convenient truth that serves our own personal interests. Korah and his coalition have a problem with Moses and Aaron having authority over them. And they think they have an equal right to the priesthood. As we'll see throughout the rest of the story in verse 10, the main issue is that Korah and his crew want priestly authority like Moses and Aaron have. Let's, let's continue. Uh, verses 4 through 7. Moses sets up a, a verification test. In order to verify who has truly been authorized to be God's priests. Verse 4 through 7. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, will, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers. Korah and all his company, a censer is, is a really elaborate metal container for, for incense, right? Typically, it would be gold. So take these censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. What's happening here? 
Because if, if you think about it, I mean, if this was today, right, we, we would say, hey, just bring out like your priesthood license or something like that. They, this is their, their priesthood license. Like what, what Moses is doing, he's saying, okay, you think you have a right to the priesthood? Like you think that on your own, you have the right to come into the holy presence of God? If, if, if you persist in believing that, if, if you demand that, then let's come before God. Let's God settle this. And so he gives them a task that was reserved only for the priests. God's chosen priests were the only ones allowed to bring an incense offering before the Lord. So this is a test to verify who is legitimately chosen or authorized by God to come into his presence. And we'll see what happens the next morning down in verse 18. But first, Moses has some words for Koah's uh, Korah's coalition. Verses 8 through 11, Moses rebukes Korah and puts his finger on what's really going on in Korah's heart. Moses diagnoses what, what's, what's actually driving this rebellion. Verses 8 through 11. It says, And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? In other words, Moses is saying, Cor, your issue is not equality. Your issue is your pride, your selfish ambition, your discontentment with God's sovereign will. You see, as I mentioned earlier, Korah wasn't one of Aaron's descendants, which meant he wasn't allowed to be a priest. But he was still a Levite. And that was by God's grace. If you read Numbers chapter 4, you'll see that he and his family had the privilege of living right next to the tabernacle, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But, but think, think about if you were invited to an inaugural dinner. And your reserved seat is right next to the president. Listen, in the Israelite camp, proximity to the tabernacle was a sign of honor and sacred responsibility. To live that close to the holy presence of God. They, they lived so close because they were the only ones other than the priests who were allowed to handle the most sacred objects of the tabernacle. Their job was to transport and literally guard the most holy objects from being touched by the rest of the congregation. So Korah was a privileged man. And yet he wasn't content. Like in his pride, he thought he deserved more than God had given him. And notice that Moses says, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. Korah and his coalition bring their charges against Moses and Aaron. And Moses says, listen, you're rebelling against God himself. You see, one of the things we learn from this story is that rebellion against godly authority is really rebellion against God's sovereignty. 
When we rebel against the authority God has set in place, the authority of the Bible, the authority of local church leaders, legitimate authority God has established in society, what's what's happening in our hearts? Just like Korah, at the core of our rebellion, listen, is unbelief. At the core of our resistance is a skepticism about the goodness of God's sovereign will at work in our life. It's it's brazen arrogance that our desires are better than God's designs. God's will for Korah, the role he designed Korah to play, the boundaries within which he had called Korah to live had become, as Moses said, too small a thing for him. God's will wasn't enough for Korah. It was too limiting. It was too restrictive. He wanted and he demanded more. We do this so often in our lives when we rail against God's sovereign work in our life. When instead of humbling ourselves under the authority of God, We think that our desires and our wisdom and our plans are better than the desires and plans and wisdom and design of Almighty God. Verses 12 through 15, the conflict intensifies when Moses confronts uh, Dathan and, and Abiram. Verses 12 through 15, it says, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor giving us inheritance of fields and vineyards. You see, you see what they're what they're saying here. They're accusing Moses of two things, bad leadership and ulterior motives. They're basically saying the same thing that the Israelites said in in chapters 11 through 14. They're saying you made a mistake when you brought us out of Egypt. If you know the history of ancient Israelites, you know how foolish this is. They they, they say you, you made a mistake when you brought us out of Egypt. We were better off in slavery under Egyptian tyranny than out here under your leadership. And on top of that, they say, Moses, you're shady. Like we, we don't we don't trust you and you haven't even come through on your promises. Then it continues the end of verse 14 and verse 15. They say, will you put out the eyes of these men? Will we not come up? They said we, we will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I've not taken one donkey from from them and I have not harmed one of them. When he, when he says, will you put, put the eyes out of these men? That's their version of, are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes? In other words, that they're saying, are, you, do you think you're going to deceive us? Like, are you trying to, to cover up your, your true motives that you made a mistake bringing us out here? You promised that you were going to take us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, notice this. The land that God had promised them in Canaan, God describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. They use that same description to describe their slavery in Egypt. How how delusional are we in the midst of our pride? When we look at what God has done in our life, we're, we're faced with his authority. We're faced with what he wants us to do. And rather than surrender to that, we look back at our old life. 
And we say, man, that old life was better. That old life was more reliable. It, it, it promises more joy, more satisfaction, more freedom than the, than the actual promises of, of God. Nathan and Abiram says, Moses, we're not coming. You're not our leader. We don't have to submit to you. We're not coming. So camp goes <clears throat> quiet. Everyone kind of awaits the, the showdown that's going to happen the next morning between Moses and Aaron and Korah's, uh, Korah's coalition. Night passes and the next morning in verses 16 through 19, Korah and the 250 chiefs meet Moses and Aaron outside the tabernacle. Each person holding their incense offerings and the entire Israelite congregation gathers around them and everyone waits to see how God will respond. They're standing outside of the tabernacle. They have their incense. The congregation is watching and everybody's waiting to see who's going to be chosen as God's authorized priest. How is God going to respond? Now, Korah's coalition should have been terrified. They should have been extremely nervous. Moses had basically instructed these men to bring an incense offering before the Lord. And this is not a casual thing. It's not only could an authorized person be killed for doing this, for, for, for bringing an offering into God's presence, but even an authorized priest could be killed for doing it in an unauthorized way. And they know this. Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and, and Abihu, they were, they were authorized priests who presented to God an unauthorized incense offering. And they are killed under the judgment of God. Korah and his coalition, as they're standing there at the tabernacle with all the congregation's eyes on them. They should have been trembling. But in their pride, they are claiming more than God has given them. So the rest of the chapter, we get a pretty intense picture of God's fierce judgment, but also his mercy. Verses 19 through 27, Moses and Aaron intercede for the congregation and demonstrate that they are the mediators appointed by God. Let's, let's read the rest of this story here. It says, Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation. Verse 20, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and said, oh, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses. He responds to their intercession and says, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. And then Moses rose and went to Datham and Abiram. Notice they wouldn't come to him, but Moses, he's an intercessor. He's, he's God's mediator in his compassion. He goes to Datham and Abiram. And the story continues. It says the elders of Israel followed him and he spoke to the congregation saying, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, of Korah Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons and their little ones. 
See, what's happening here is that as these people rebel against God's authority through Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron are not phased. They are, by God's design, Israel's mediators. They're the ones to stand between God's holy presence and this sinful people. And so they come before God on behalf of the congregation and say, God, would you save them? God, would you please do not pour out your judgment on them? God, would you rescue them from your from your judgment? And and this shows this demonstrates this. This proves that Moses and Aaron are the true mediators authorized by God to come into God's presence on behalf of the people. But I also want you to see God's mercy in giving the congregation an opportunity to repent To say, I'm not going to identify with with this rebellious group. I'm going to repent. I'm going to separate myself from them by identifying with God's revealed mediators. And if you think about it, the only reason Aaron is high priest is because of God's mercy in the midst of his sin. Like they're coming against they're coming against Aaron and they're beefing because Aaron is the high priest. And Aaron has to be thinking if he has any consciousness of God's grace that he deserves God's judgment as well. If you if you're familiar with the Old Testament previously in the book of of Exodus, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive God's revelation in the Ten Commandments, Aaron is at the base of the mountain and he leads God's people into idolatry by making a golden calf. So this is an astounding picture of God's mercy and God's grace that God is even allowing Aaron to serve in this role. So Moses and Aaron intercede on behalf of the congregation. Verses 28 through 35, God executes his judgment against the rebels. Verse 28, it says, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, when he says something new, he means if the Lord does something supernatural here. And the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all who were around them. Who, who was around them at this point? The people who have repented and separated themselves from the rebellion, identified themselves with God's mediators. Those people in fear, they cry out, they flee and they say, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. God pours out his judgment on these unrepentant sinners who rebel against the authority of God. The ground opens up 
and they fall into Sheol. A Sheol in, in, um, in a Jewish context is just the abode of the dead. It's just kind of where the dead go. And what's unique, what's supernatural about this is not just an earthquake or the ground splitting, but people die and then go to Sheol. What's supernatural about this is they drop alive straight into the realm of the dead. This is spectacular, observable judgment that God executes against these rebels in order to demonstrate his authority in choosing Moses and Aaron as Israel's mediator. And, and some, of us, some of us read something like this and we're like, ah, see, that's why I don't get down with the Old Testament. Like, I'm good with the New Testament because it's all love and inclusion and everything's awesome. And then people get swallowed up in the Old Testament. You know? But here's the reality of the matter. Like, we're in a, uh, all, all of God's history is a history of, of his grace. But, but uniquely right now, with, with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, like, as the gospel goes out from person to person, church to church, nation to nation, all around the world, then we have an opportunity to respond to the gospel as God works in our hearts, to repent, to humble ourselves under God's authoritative gospel and to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. And that's great. And and here's the game that some of us play. Some of us think that because we're not seeing this kind of spectacular judgment right now, that that somehow uh, um, inauthenticates the Old Testament. That when we see the Old Testament, like, oh, that that must have been made up because Jesus isn't like that. Jesus Jesus is that part of God that's gracious and that in his love forgives people. And and, and it's true that, that Jesus comes with the grace of God and he forgives people. But there is a day when every single one of us, like these people, stand before the holy presence of God in the midst of the congregation. All of us will stand before the presence of God in the midst of a congregation and we will give an account for the sin in our life and if we have not repented separated ourselves from the rebellion and identified ourselves with God's mediator there is a more spectacular observable judgment coming on all of humanity and Satan and demons it's way more terrifying than what we see here in the Bible don't get it twisted God is a holy God God will judge sin God will he is patient Because he wants people to repent and to know Christ. But he will not, he will not, he cannot in his holiness tolerate sin indefinitely. He will bring judgment on you and on I and on my grandmother and on my daughter and my son. If we persist in our unrepentance and refuse to trust and believe the gospel. We get a picture of that here in this story. Jesus will He will return and he will execute judgment. Verses 36 through 40 will summarize. It says, basically, God instructs Moses to have the priests. So this is a kind of a sober scene, right? It's not dead people around because they're in the ground, right? But their censers, right? These incense containers are still laying around. God instructs Moses to have the priests melt the metal censers down into covering plates for the altar so that every time the Israelites saw the altar... Those plates would remind them that no outsider, it says, who is not of the uh, descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company. God gives Israel a symbol that says 
No one can directly come into my presence apart from my divinely appointed mediators. In verses 41 through 50, the Israelites complain against Moses and Aaron. Still, like you would think at this point, revival was about to break out. I mean, they, they just saw, like, they, they escaped God's judgment because of Moses and Aaron's intercession, because they separated themselves from, from, from the rebellion, not really knowing what's about to happen. All the rebels dropping to the ground. At this point, you and I are like, God, whatever you want to do, I'm down, right? You would think that, but the persistence of the sinful heart shows itself in verses 41 through 50. They continue to complain against Moses and Aaron. There is no consciousness of God because of their hardened hearts. And they blame Moses and Aaron for killing Korah and his coalition. And once again, in the face of God's impending judgment, Moses and Aaron intercede. Once again, they demonstrate the reality that they are God's mediator to to intervene and intercede on behalf of the people of God. So I won't read that whole section, but I do want to read this amazing picture in verses 46 through 48. God was sending a plague as his judgment for the people's persistent rebellion. And then in verses 46 through 48, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer. And put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. And so Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And I love this in verse 48. It says, and he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. The plague was stopped. Remember the opening question that we had, like like this whole story has been one kind of dramatized answer to this question. Who has been authorized to enter the presence of God on behalf of the people? And in dramatic fashion, God demonstrated his his answer by executing his judgment against the rebels, by accepting Moses and Aaron's intercession on behalf of the congregation. And by giving Israel a symbol to continually remind them that access to his holy presence is only given on his terms and through his mediator. So as we prepare to close, what what is this story designed to teach us? And we've alluded to, to some of it. I mean, listen, there's 50 verses here. There's a lot that this story is designed to teach us. But here's what's absolutely clear, that this is a warning against rebelling against God's authority. God requires us to come to him on his terms. We don't make up our own terms to come before a a holy God. We don't make up our own terms to enter into a relationship with a holy God. God meets us where we are, but he invites us into his presence on his terms. And our job is to humble ourselves under God's authority. So how do we humble ourselves under God's authority? Let me leave you with these two thoughts, these implications of the text. We humble ourselves under God's authority, number one, by submitting to God's truth. 
By submitting to God's truth as revealed in his word. Listen, in our culture right now, listen, there is there isn't absolute truth. Certainly not absolute truth that's been revealed by the God of the universe. Like truth is relative. Truth is what resonates with me, what resonates with my personal upbringing or my own desires. That's what truth is or or truth is just it's just cultural. Right. So we have our truths, our, our, our body of truths in the West, and that's different in the East. And on a certain level, that may be true. But when it comes to the revelation of God in his word, this is absolute truth from the holy and good and wise God of the universe who has not left us in the dark, groping around, trying to figure out how to make it through this life and into the next. God has revealed himself And he's revealed himself preeminently in the gospel. The main truth claim in this passage is that no one can come into the presence of God except through the mediator he has appointed. We can only approach God through his mediator. And that's the truth revealed in the gospel. Listen, if you're a Christian here, we need to constantly be reminded of this. This is why in in your services here at Sojourn, that not just the preaching, but even the structure of the service is designed to remind you that on your own, you cannot come into the presence of God, but God has made a way through his mediator, Jesus. And as we come to the table, it's designed to remind you of that. And as we sing these songs, and if you're not a Christian, you have to humble yourself and submit yourself to the truth that you cannot come into the presence of a holy God. You can't live in relationship with him. You can't get forgiveness of your sin. After your death, you cannot have eternal life in his holy presence apart from absolute 100% trust and reliance in his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through a Catholic priest. It's not through some teacher of enlightenment. It's certainly, you're certainly, and I'm certainly not qualified to be our own mediator. First Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ, God, who came in human flesh on a mission to rescue sinners from their sin through his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. This Jesus is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I'm the way. God, this isn't me. This isn't evangelicals. This isn't the religious rites. This is Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not an option. It's it's not an an additional mediator in, in addition to some other religious practices. It's not our good works that earn our way, that merit our way into God's favor and blessed presence. It is only exclusively through the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And all over Hebrews, it echoes this truth over and over and over again. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 it says for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness talking about human high priests like Aaron because of this 
he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God the Father. And Hebrews continues to show us that in Jesus, he made one sacrifice once and for all because he is the perfect sinless lamb of God. The perfect God man whose sacrificial death is able to atone eternally for all who will trust in him he didn't have sin he didn't have to atone for himself he could make atonement one time through his death perfect sacrifice that's jesus Moses and Aaron intervene on behalf of the Israelites. And because of that, God grants mercy to those who repent and separate themselves from the rebellion. And in the same way, Christ intervenes for us and we are saved from God's judgment as we repent and separate ourselves from the rebellion of Adam, our ancestor. And we identify ourselves with the righteousness of Jesus through faith in Jesus, through trust in the person and the work of Christ. Jesus is the one who runs into the midst of the sinful congregation and stands between the living and the dead. Jesus isn't running out waving incense. Jesus runs into the midst of the congregation by literally Philippians 2, leaving his glory in heaven, taking on the form of a human being, putting on human flesh in all of its frailty, coming to earth in the midst of sinful humanity. And he stands between the living and the dead, having redeemed the living and offering the dead life through him and him alone. And he stands Offering you that life this morning, no matter what you've done, where you're from, what your religious background is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And his promise, his guarantee is that if your full hope and trust, if your life rests on him, you will be saved from God's judgment and enjoy God's presence for eternity. I just want to encourage you this morning, do that this morning, cry out to God and say, God, in my sin, I deserve your judgment, but I trust Jesus as your mediator, the only person through whom I can have a relationship with you. And God, I want to separate myself from sinful rebellion and I want to surrender and humble myself under your authority. And Christians in the room, this is why we got to share the gospel. We can't shrink back from this truth. It's not bigoted. It's not arrogant. It's true. It's true. And we may not feel the weight of the truth right now in this life. But if we were like this congregation standing around this coalition of rebels and we saw God's judgment fall on them, which we will in that moment, in that moment, we'll understand how serious it is and how much of a privilege it is for us to be the bearers of the good news of the gospel and to say in Christ, in Christ, you don't have to pay for your own sin. Jesus did that for you. We humble ourselves under God's authority, number one, by submitting to God's truth. And number two, and lastly, as we close, by submitting to God's church. Submitting to God's church. We got to play our role in the local church and allow others to play their role in the local church. And when I say submitting to God's church, I mean it in two ways, the leadership 
in, in God's church, in the local church, and the membership in, in God's local church. As it relates to, to the leadership, if you're like me, so many of us, we want a church that flattens out all hierarchy and leadership. Like that was me. My dad's a pastor. I went to kind of typical evangelical story. Dad's a pastor. I went to church. Wasn't really a believer. God saved me. But here's the unique thing that happened. Because I had grown up in the local church and tradition and, and pastors and elders and all this kind of stuff. Man, it was refreshing. It was awesome to be in a college ministry where there was no hierarchy. We were, just, we were all one. We, we were all equal. There was no real authority in that mix, and some of us want to want to take that, and we, and we want to impose that on a local church and say we don't need a pastor to be over us. I mean, think about it. I mean, even back in the day, right? The the pulpit was up high, signifying not the authority of the preacher or the pastor, but the authority of God's word over the congregation. But now like, we want to sit in a circle. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with small groups, community groups, all that. that, that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that's great. I'm just saying that there's something in our hearts that even in a local church, like we don't want to submit to leadership in a local church because we're like Coors Coalition. All of us are holy. We're all sinners saved by grace. Justin is no different than, 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 than the Christian that just walked in here for the first time. So, so why, 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 can, why do you impose any authority? Well, here's the deal. God's leadership is only imposing God's authority, not their own, in accordance with God's word. And that happens through the elders and the pastors of this local assembly, this local body. Just as the children of Israel are, are gathered into an assembly under the, God's authority, which, which happens through God's mediator. Listen, the local church is an assembly gathered under the authority of Jesus Christ. And that authority is, is distributed out. It's lived out through the leadership in the local church. So 1 Peter 5, 1 through 6 says... So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain like they were accusing Moses. Don't be shady, but do it eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, I love how the Apostle Paul describes church leadership. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's a description of the role of the pastors and the elders here in this local church and in any local church. These are men who have been given authority in the local church by God as it is in accordance with God's word. And their job is not to beat you over your head. Their job is not to just tell you what to do. Their job is not to inhibit your joy. Their job is to work with you in order to enhance your joy and your delight in Christ. And that's why there is no churchless Christianity. God in his mercy, God in his grace, God in his great love calls us into a church family. 
And as we submit ourselves to the elders and the pastors of that local church, we are doing so in pursuit of our joy and the glory of God and not at the expense of it. But it's not just submitting to the leadership of the church, but it's submitting to the membership of the church. How long can we as Christians church hop? I mean, I mean, how long can we like hop from church to church just to see what songs they're playing that week or or, or what instrument setup they happen to have or, or what arrangement they do or how funny this particular preacher is? And we come and we just kind of date the church, but we don't really make that commitment. We don't submit ourselves to a local body and say, I'm giving you permission To speak God's truth into my life. Like the book of Ephesians says, the apostle Paul says, we grow up, we mature in Christ as we are speaking the truth in love to one another. And so all of us in a local church, if we're Christians, if we have God's spirit, God has given us gifts. He has given us gifts that he wants us to use to help build up, to encourage, to strengthen God's Church in Romans 12, 3 and 4 says, for by the grace given to me, the apostle Paul says to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think like Korah. God, I'm a Levite, but I'm not a priest and I think I should be a priest. Don't think too highly of yourself, he says, but to think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function we are all we all have equal access to god through jesus we are all saved and sanctified by the spirit of god we all have an eternal inheritance waiting for us if we are in christ but that does not mean there are not distinct roles in the body in the local church that does not mean that we don't submit ourselves in humility to our brother that calls us out on sin that he sees in our life or the sister that calls us out on the unbelief that she sees in our life and so do you are you now are you allowing other believers to speak god's authoritative truth into your life Not just joining a community group and kind of being like, okay, that sounded good. Not just hearing a sermon and saying, okay, that sounded good. I'll just kind of wait to see if that applies to me. But saying, as the word of God comes into my life through the pastors and elders of the church, through the other members of the body, I will submit myself to the authority of God in his word as it comes out of the lips of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And together we will live under the the authority of God, journeying toward the promised land, the new heaven and the new earth with, where Jesus reigns over everything and all sin is gone and it's abolished. Like, like Justin said several weeks ago when he's preaching on the numbers, we journey together under the authority of God to reach the destination that Jesus has purchased for us. God's God calls us to come to him on his terms and requires us to humble ourselves under his authority. And he is not a God that is waiting to inhibit our joy. He wants to enhance our joy because our true joy is only found in him. This is nothing different than the Lord Jesus did when he was walking the earth in his ministry. He's the God, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. And when he walked on this earth, he did what pleased the father. He knelt down in the garden For me and for you before he's getting ready to go to the cross. 
And when he feels the frailty of human flesh and he looks at the experience of being separated from God the Father on the cross as all of God's wrath and judgment for the sins of all uh, mankind are poured on him. Jesus says, God, it looks like that's going to be too much. And what does God do in that moment? What, What does Jesus do in that moment? Jesus humbles himself under the authority of his father. And he says, not my will, God, but your will be done. And Hebrews 12 tells us why he did that. For the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, the delight on the father's face who has elected men and women to know him, to love him, to be his children. And he enters into that. He participates as the son of God by going to the cross and making sacrifice for you and for I. So we lay down our lives in response to the Jesus who laid down his life. We, we surrender ourselves under the authority of God because that God is the God who came on our behalf. That Jesus, the one who laid himself down under the authority of God, the father. We can trust God. Whatever that looks like in your life, whether it's in your family, it's in your career, it's in the church, it's morally in your life. It's God's call on your life vocationally, whatever it is, we can surrender. We must surrender to the authority of God if we want to maximize our joy in him. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a a sobering word, God, for me to think about, Lord, to have thought about over the last several weeks, to read, to meditate on. Lord, this is a, a word out of your scriptures, Lord God, that really, really rails against my flesh and the ways that I want to flex, Lord, to try to pursue freedom and, and joy apart from you. But God, thank you, Lord, that in your holiness, but also in your mercy, Lord, you don't let us do that, Lord. Father, you draw us, you draw us to you. You give us reasons, Lord, to trust you over and over again throughout the scriptures. And so, Father, would you give us your grace? Would you help us, God, to surrender to your authority for the glory of your great name and for our joy and delight in you? Amen.